invite you now to take out your Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 4. John 4, starting in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him, to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of being able to be gathered here in your name. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, we pray that you would do what only you can, cause that word to come alive in the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that you would grant clarity, may it be only your truth that is spoken here. Uh, We pray that your spirit would grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts to understand. Uh, Be glorified now in the preaching of your word, and may your people be edified and built up. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we return back to our series in John, and we pick up uh, right where we left off in chapter 4. You may remember Jesus has been in Samaria, where he met the woman at the well, and as a result of her encounter with Jesus, she had gone into town and testified to the townspeople about Jesus, that he was the Christ. Many Samaritans had then come to meet Jesus and, as a result, had believed that he was the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world. They then invited Jesus to stay with them for two days. And that brings us to our text for this morning. Let's read together from verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So after the stay in Samaria, Jesus continues the journey that he had begun from Judea to Galilee. And we get this interesting phrase. Now, it was a fairly common one. If you read the Gospels, you'll come across this a number of times. Uh, But it's a, a bit of a tricky statement in this context, right? A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, what makes it tricky here is discerning how it's meant to function. Right? Why does Jesus say this here and now as they're traveling to Galilee? 
Well, the best answer, I believe, is that Jesus is contrasting the reception he had received in Samaria, where he'd been welcomed by the Samaritans, uh, with the way that he has been and will continue to be received in Galilee and Judea. As we've seen over the last number of weeks, the Samaritans welcomed him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And we saw the closest thing to a miracle that Jesus did there was demonstrate his supernatural knowledge. Remember, he knew of the Samaritan woman's messy past, how she'd been married five times and was now living in sin. So Jesus didn't perform any miracles there, and yet, uh, in spite of this, right, no turning water to wine, no casting out evil spirits, uh, no healings, and yet the Samaritans received him gladly. Now, in contrast, the seemingly positive reception of the people in Galilee and Judea, which is all Jewish territory, right, Jesus' own homeland, Uh, This positive reception seems to be entirely dependent upon the miracles that Jesus had performed. Verse 45 begins to draw this out. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So notice the welcome that Jesus received in Galilee was based on what the Galileans had seen Jesus do at the Passover in Jerusalem. If you remember back to John chapter 2, verse 23, while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, it says this, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Right, so Jesus is performing miracles. He's performing these signs and wonders. And it says, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs. And yet, John draws our attention to the fact that there's something missing in their belief. Because the very next verse, John 2.24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Interesting, it's actually the same word there for the people believed Jesus and entrusted him, but Jesus did not believe in them. It's the same word in the Greek for those two words there. Um, So their belief at this point seems to have been based on the signs alone, right? The miracles, the, the miraculous wonders that he's doing and has not gone any deeper than that. As one commentator put it so well, the people have been easily moved because they have not been deeply moved. And so here now, Jesus returns to Galilee, where some of the people who had seen his miracles in Jerusalem welcome him. Uh, Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So now here, in addition to the the reference to the miracles he had performed in Jerusalem, uh, we're reminded again that he had turned water to wine at the wedding in Cana. Now he's coming back to that same town where that miracle had occurred. Now we saw in that story, not everybody knew about that miracle initially, but the servants knew. You can imagine if you had witnessed somebody turn water to wine, that's the kind of thing that becomes the, the water cooler talk. Right, that's the kind of thing you're telling people about. Do you know what this guy did? Uh, and then especially add that to uh, the report of the miracles he's performed in Jerusalem. 
And by this time, we can understand that Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker has begun to spread. Everybody in the region knows about him and knows that he is a powerful miracle worker. And that actually explains and sets up our next verse here. So let's continue on in our text. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So having likely heard of Jesus' miracles, uh, both at Passover and perhaps uh, the miracle at Cana, turning water to wine, this man whose son is sick now comes to Jesus to see if he can heal his son, right? Thinking perhaps if this man could turn water to wine, then perhaps he could help my son. If he could perform these signs, these miracles back in Jerusalem, then perhaps he could perform a miracle in Capernaum. Now, whatever his level of knowledge or understanding or faith may have been at this point, this man did the best thing he possibly could have done. And that is, he sought out Jesus. He took his troubles to Christ and he asked him for help. Now just consider for a moment how much better our position is than the position this man was in. We, brothers and sisters, Christians, we have not only heard the reputation of Jesus as a miracle worker, but we know him to be the Messiah, the only unique son of the Most High God, having received all authority in heaven and on earth. We have not only heard that he might have power, we know he has power. This man sought out Jesus with very little knowledge as well as to whether or not Jesus would be favorably disposed toward him. Consider our position. We know that Christ is for us. For Jesus has demonstrated beyond all shadow of any doubt that he is for us by laying down his life in our place. How much better a position are we in than this man? Or consider the pains he had to go to to reach him. Long before cars were invented, this man had to travel from Capernaum to Cana, right, between 25 to 35 kilometers, in order to gain an audience with Jesus to bring his request before him. How much better a situation are we in for we simply need to pray, and wherever we are, Jesus hears us. Dear congregation, let us consider our blessed position. Let us follow the example of this Father. Bring your troubles to Christ. Come to him with your requests. Lay before him your prayers and petitions. Lay your burdens down before the Lord. Bring to him your troubles, confident that he is powerful and able to answer. Bring your petitions to the Lord, confident that he will hear you, confident that he is for you. Whatever knowledge at the time this father may have had, he did the best possible thing. 
he sought out Jesus. So let us who know Jesus better than he, let us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord, Master, our Beloved, let us do the same. Let us seek his help. Let us be people of prayer. All right, let's continue on. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now that likely strikes us as somewhat odd and perhaps rather harsh response. The father comes seeking help for his son. Jesus responds, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now what's going on here? Well, we are helped if we will note, a lot of your Bibles will have a footnote uh, beside the word you. Uh, We're helped if we see that the word you in Greek is plural, right? The word is plural. Uh, The King James draws this out. It has the word ye, unless ye believe. That's a plural uh, word there. Um, And we've actually lost that in modern English. We we use the same word whether we're talking singular or plural. So Jesus uses the plural here, unless you, that is, unless you people see signs and wonders, you, you, plural, will not believe. And so this suggests that he's not speaking only to this father, but this is a critique that he has for the Galileans in general. Remember, again, we've already had this set up by John. The reason for the big welcome from the Galileans, the reason why they were excited to see him, was because of their fascination with his signs, the wonders, the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem and perhaps at Cana. Um, And so we, we will see this contrast Uh, continue to develop the the different responses to Jesus, Uh, especially as we look at the immediate contrast with how Jesus had just been received in Samaria. Uh, D.A. Carson comments on this and says, many of the despised Samaritans, right, those, those people who were not on the inside, those people who had their questionable past, their questionable practices, many despised Samaritans turned to Christ while many of the historic covenant community, right, the Jews, those who were in uh, the, the right stream, who should have had uh, the right understanding, many of the historic covenant community either actively oppose him or cannot progress beyond a fascination in miracles and politics. We see this throughout the book of John, throughout the Gospel of John, Uh, We hear echoes of this theme that John introduced to us in the prologue, and that is Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus gives this statement as a critique of the Galileans' fascination in signs and wonders. However, the father remains undeterred by Jesus' response, and he continues to press. Verse 48, the official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. So this father continues to press, continues to ask Jesus for a response. He is not bothered by the initial response that he receives, but he continues asking for what he came to ask. And I believe in this we see another parallel to the way we ought to be 
in prayer. Not only must we seek out Christ as the Father did, not only must we come to Jesus with our prayers and petitions, but as Christ himself teaches us, we must be diligent in prayer. We must be persistent in prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow. And great blessing for the preacher, Luke actually tells you what the point of that parable is before he even gives you the parable. So Luke 18 verse 1 says this, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And the parable was of the widow who comes to the unrighteous judge and she comes again and again and again asking for justice. And the unrighteous judge says, you know, I don't fear God, I don't care about man's opinion, but so that this woman will not wear me out with her coming, I'll, I'll give her what she wants. And so Jesus commends the example of the widow. Pray like that. Keep on coming and coming and coming. And the idea there as well is that how much more willing is your loving Heavenly Father to listen to you than the unrighteous judge? Right. Be persistent. Do not ask once and then give up if your prayer is not answered. Be like the persistent widow. Persevere in prayer. Always pray and do not lose heart. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, glorious words, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What glorious hope must have filled that man's heart. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. So he turned around and went home. Would have been another long journey. But just imagine how different would this journey have been compared to the journey there. Right, when he traveled to Cana seeking Jesus, he had, he had a desperate sort of hope. A hope that perhaps this miracle worker that I've heard about might possibly be powerful enough to do something for my son. A hope that perhaps if he's powerful enough, he might be willing to do something for my son. It was a form of hope, a, a desperate hope that drove him there. And so now compare how different the kind of hope that would have filled his heart. He has now met Jesus, and Jesus has shown himself both able and willing to help. And the father then went home in a new hope, no doubt with these words just echoing in his mind again and again and again, your son will live. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and was filled with hope. This father took Christ at his word. 
He believed the promise of Jesus. Notice, Jesus doesn't do exactly what the Father asked. Both in verse 47 and 49, the Father asked him, Come with me, come with me down to Capernaum and come heal my son. But Jesus doesn't go. He simply gives his word. Go. Your son will live. And that was enough for this father. The father believed the word of Jesus and went on his way full of new hope. So what was different between the journey there, that desperate hope, and the journey home with this new form of hope? The father had a promise from Christ. And it changed everything. And we see as well, this for us is how the promises of God are meant to function in our lives. Promises give us hope, and hope transforms how we live in the present. Once again, the father at this point, he had not yet received the thing he was hoping for. Right As he turned around and went back on the journey home, he did not yet know whether or not his son had been healed, but scripture tells us that he believed the word of Christ. His actions testify to the same. He turned and went. And so we see a great example in this story of how hope and the promises of God can transform our lives in the present. In some ways, we are all very much like this father If we are Christians, we have received many great and precious promises from God. Just as the Father received a promise from Christ. And yet, in this life, we do not see the fullness of the promises fulfilled as of yet. In some ways, we are still on that journey home. But the promises we have, if we will believe Christ, if we will take Christ at his word, like the Father did, the promises will transform our journey home. It'll be a very different journey home. For the promises give us hope. And that hope brings the joy that we will have in the future here into our present. That is the function of hope and promises. As we've already read this morning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice. 1 Peter 1, 3-6. Brothers and sisters, let us too, like this father, take Christ at his word. We too have been given the glorious promises from Christ, which will transform our lives if we will just take Christ at his word, Hope and the promises of God will transform our lives here and now. 
But brothers and sisters, mark this well. You cannot be encouraged by a promise that you do not know. Let that motivate you to go to the word. Right? God has given us all these great promises. Promises about heaven, our future inheritance. Promises to grant us the strength we need in every situation to honor him. Promises to grant us his spirit, to never leave us or forsake us. These and so many more are all intended by God to bless you now, to give you strength now. And all of these promises can only function fully in your life if you know them. If you believe them. So brothers and sisters, to be blessed in the way that God wants you to be blessed, you must get into the word. You must see all that Christ has promised you. You must believe the word of Jesus. Take him at his word and let these promises have their full effect. continue on. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour was when the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now let's just put yourself, uh, put yourself in the father's shoes for a moment. Right. He's traveling down the road. He's got this long journey. And as he gets closer to home, he starts to see people off in the distance coming towards him. As he gets closer, he recognizes that these are his servants. And he knows they are coming. They have news. They are coming to tell me something. And so before they'd even be close enough to hear each other, he'd be looking. Are they coming with good news or are they coming with bad news? He'd be looking at their body language. How are they walking? Are their shoulders drooped or are they excited? And so as they get closer, he sees they're walking excitedly. They are coming with good news. Their expressions are joyful. And so he meets them and then hears the words that his soul has been longing for. Your son is recovering. He's getting better. The fever is gone. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And the father undoubtedly rejoiced there on the road. And then a burning question comes to his mind. Exactly when did the fever leave him? Exactly when did he start getting better? Is this all just one big coincidence? Did he start to recover like the moment I left home and it just took you guys this long to come and find me? Is that what happened here? The answer would have made his heart leap. Yesterday the seventh hour, 1 p.m. And he knew, verse 53 says, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. 
His father had believed Jesus, and his son was given life. And so he himself believed, and all his household. Now that's an interesting phrase. He himself believed? Didn't he already believe? He sought out Jesus, having heard what Jesus had done in Jerusalem, and possibly at the wedding at Cana. Right? He, he went to him because he believed, right? And when Jesus said to him, your son will live, verse 50 tells us that he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. So what is this then about him believing here in verse 53? And I think this is a development of that theme that we've been looking at. The one John has been developing since chapter 2. What we've seen in these past few stories is various responses to Jesus, including various groups claiming to believe in Jesus. And so I think what we're meant to see here is that certain types of belief in Jesus are not sufficient. The Galileans welcomed Jesus because of what they had seen him do at Jerusalem. They had seen the signs. Many of them believed in his name, but as we saw, there was something lacking, for Jesus on his part did not believe in them, for he knew their hearts. To simply be impressed by miracles, to simply acknowledge that Jesus has some kind of power or is some kind of special person, is not the kind of belief that Jesus was looking for. You know, throughout his ministry, Jesus would encounter a good number of people who would show a great deal of enthusiasm toward him and the things he was doing. There are crowds who held him to be a prophet. There are crowds who tried by force to make him king. There were crowds who sought him out as a teacher and miracle worker. And yet, as we'll see throughout the rest of John, many of these believers proved fickle. As some of Jesus' hard sayings, we'll read later in John chapter 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The same city that would hail him as a king, waving palm branches, throwing their cloaks on the road before him. That same city was calling for his crucifixion less than a week later. In our day, too, there are many out there who will claim to believe in Jesus, and they mean their their own idea of what that means. They have their own idea of what that means. Or they claim to appreciate certain things about him. And yet we see... Not all claims of belief are genuine. It requires more than a simple intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. It requires more than a simple recognition that, yes, he is the Son of God. For do not even the demons know those facts? Now, what did Jesus hear every time he'd confront an evil spirit, they would start saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, and he would not let them speak. 
Do not even the demons believe these mere facts about Jesus and tremble? So there are many people living in self-deception. They'll claim to believe certain things about Jesus or his word. Maybe they'll think there's some really, really fascinating things in the Bible. Perhaps they view themselves as enlightened. Perhaps they've deconstructed what they see as the shackles of their former religion and are now building their own version of things, cutting out what they don't like, keeping what they do, and thinking, well, we simply need to believe in Jesus and we'll be saved, right? Yes, but let us clearly see that God's word defines for us what true saving faith looks like. And as we'll see, as we see in our text today, the quote-unquote belief of the miracle chasers was not enough. The belief of even the Father trusting in the word of Jesus was not yet enough. And so John draws out this contrast. And we see at the end of the story, verse 53, He himself now truly believed, and all his household. Charles Ellicott writes, There is more than one miracle here. A new life passes into his own spirit too. And he too, bound in the death grasp of a formal religion, now liveth. A father's love has yearned for him. Christ has come down ere the child died. The father believed Jesus and his son was given new life. Greater yet, the father now believed and he was given new life. He then proclaimed what he knew to his household, told them all that had happened of the exact timing of when the son had been healed, and they too believed and were given new life. And so though the father didn't know it, his desire to save his son was serving a yet greater purpose in the providence of God. For in seeking out Jesus he would not only find new life healing for his son here on earth, but he would find eternal life for himself and for his household, who all believed with him. Verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this ties this for us into the broader story of the Gospel of John. John actually tells us directly why he wrote about the signs Jesus did. John 20, 30 and 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So catch that. What is the purpose 
for which John recorded these miracles, these signs that Jesus did, so that you may believe, so that you may have life in his name. As this father believed Jesus and his son received life, so also, if we will believe, the father will grant us life through his son. The purpose for which John recorded this story is his hope that what happened for this father and his household would happen to us as well. They believed. They received life, eternal life. Now just think on this. Regardless of the healing, that son, that man, and his household, they lived nearly 2,000 years ago. They all faced death, miraculous healing or not. So in one sense, we actually see verse 53 could be seen as the focal point here. For they believed. As Jesus will say later in John, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So let's return now to this question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is saving faith? What sets the belief that Jesus is looking for apart from that of these miracle chasers, of these fickle people? Well, saving faith is trust that Jesus is who he said that he was. That he is the promised Messiah spoken of by the prophets of old. Trust that he is the Son of God, the pre-existent Christ, who entered his own creation to be the Savior of the world. It involves the recognition that we have sinned. That we were under the sentence of death for our sin. That there is nothing that we could ever do to make ourselves right before God. And so saving faith in Christ is throwing ourselves upon his mercy, like that tax collector in Jesus' parable, who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast with sorrow and grief over his sin, cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that is the man who went home justified. So true saving faith is a despairing of self-righteousness and throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. It is receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. The father believed Christ and his son was given life. As a result, his whole household believed in Christ and they were all given life. And this story was recorded so that you, the reader, the hearer, would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Take Christ at his word. Believe in him and you will have life. Now we are not promised health and healing here in this life. The fact is, not every story here on earth 
ends as happily as it did for this official. There are times where though we pray and pray and pray, though we seek the Lord with tears, asking for healing for our loved one, there are times we don't get the answer that we had hoped for. But brothers and sisters, take heart. For that happy ending that our hearts are longing for is still to come if we continue to hope in Christ. Jesus Christ is our healer. If you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you will turn from your sin and trust in him alone for salvation, you will have life and healing in his name. Eternal life, eternal healing in the presence of God forever. Death swallowed up in victory. No more crying, no more sorrow or sickness or tears or pain. Life and healing ever after. And Christ is our surety. For we know that he has paid the debt that he owed. Every sin of his people was laid upon him. And he died with the condemnation and wrath of God upon himself. And so God showed that that sin was finished. That it was dealt with by raising him from the dead. For if he had still had that sin on him, he would not have been raised. So because he lives, we too shall live. So friends, you who do not yet know Christ, I implore you, believe in the Son, and the Father will give you life. To my brothers and sisters in faith, in the faith, live in the hope that you have in the promises of God. Amen.